This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant Podcast is for people who are passionate about farming, gardening, food politics, food security, and the intersections among these topics. At theruminant.ca, you'll find a summary of each episode, as well as book reviews, essays, and photo-based blog posts to stimulate your thinking about food production. I tweet, at ruminantblog, and email from editor at theruminant.ca. All right, time for the show. Hey everybody, it's Jordan. So last week I talked about the new format that I'm going to be trying out uh, at least for the next number of episodes. And essentially it works like this. Uh, One week I'm going to have a long form interview featuring usually something that takes a broader view about the topics we cover on the show. And then the following week I'll zoom in and talk about some of the practical aspects of farming. And in those episodes I've actually been putting together a group of regular guests, let's call them columnists, um, with expertise in different aspects of farming, who will come on every once in a while to to share one specific thing or maybe two uh, about something they do in their own farming. So today you're going to get a, a, a real sense of, of what I mean by that, of what the episodes that are going to focus on practical tips uh, will, will sound like. Uh, I've got four guests today. Uh, we're going to hear from three different producers and also the editor of the Canadian Organic Grower magazine, because another thing I want to do is to highlight good farm journalism. Okay, so today we're going to hear from a flower grower who's going to talk about a couple of types of flowers that are really good ones to start with if you haven't produced cut flowers before, and also a couple that you should stay away from. Next, we're going to hear from a pastured poultry farmer about how to manage your flocks when conditions get cold and wet. After that, we'll talk to a really successful market gardener from my province about some early season crops to consider that have really worked for him. And finally, we'll talk to the editor of the Canadian Organic Grower magazine. So that's about it for the intro. Uh, The first conversation is with Jessica Gale, and I'll let her introduce herself. My name is Jessica Gale, and my farm is Sweet Gale Gardens. I started out as an urban farmer and now I'm moving out to the country and I specialize in cut flowers uh, for sale at market, grocery stores, and I also do special events in a CSA. It's www.sweetgale, G-A-L-E, gardens with an S, dot com. All right. So Jessica, uh, ahead of this conversation, I asked you to think about some suggestions for good flowers for newbies with cut flowers to start with. So let's maybe assume a market gardener like me who focuses on vegetables is going Mm -hmm. to the farmer's market and realizes, hey, I could probably be selling some cut flowers at market, but I've never done it before. Do you have some suggestions for flowers uh, that are like easy on the new grower? Sure. Um, One flower, I would say that's kind of a gateway flower for a lot of people who start with growing cut flowers is uh, zinnias. They're pretty easy to grow. You can direct seed them or you can start them in the greenhouse. They come in so many colors, so many forms, um, and they're relatively easy to grow. um, And people like them because they're nice and colorful. Um, I'm also gonna suggest snapdragons. Um, There's also a lot of different forms. a lot of different colors. They're pretty easy to grow, a little tricky getting them to germinate, but if you follow the instructions on the seed packet, works really well. Okay, great. Jessica, uh, zinnias, are they, as I understand, zinnias are great, as you say, because of the great color variation you can get, but they also, Mm -hmm. they just produce and produce and produce all season, don't they? 
Yeah, yeah. So they're what we call like a cut and come again flower. So different mm-hmm. cut flowers. Um, some you can only get one cutting off of, some another just a few cuts. But zinnias were really great because they continue to produce through the whole summer. So um, here in Ontario, I will start seeing them blooming probably in early July and they will last until frost. Okay, and can you talk about uh, cutting and um, I guess packaging for market? Like, are they are they easy to cut and do they are do they stand up to to I mean, are they, do they store well and and last long? Yeah, um, wisinias. What they're very similar to things like basil, so they actually don't want to be refrigerated. Um, and they are there are some tricks to harvesting them. Um, the it, kind of a strange thing to describe but one of the ways you tell that they're ready to be cut is you hold just below the the bloom the head and you give it a little shake and if it's nice and stiff it's ready to cut if it wobbles back and forth a lot like a bobblehead uh it needs a little bit more time to firm up um um and they usually will last anywhere from five to ten days depending on how well people care for them Okay, so so how how like could you suggest a standard group of zinnias and a price to charge and how I would present them at market? Yeah, so uh, a good variety that um, is just like an industry standard is um, Benares uh, giant uh, zinnia. They're really great quality um, flowers. I'm not um, positive, but I think like a company like Johnny's might have it also in our organic seed. Um, and for packaging, usually when you're, you're selling, um, just one type of flower, it's very common to sell them in groups of like five, 10 or uh, 20 stems. So say you sold like 10 zinnias, you could probably sell them between five and $7, depending on your market. So a bigger city market, you might get a better price, um, more of a country market, be a little bit of a lower price people are more likely to grow their own flowers so okay so let's let's move on to snapdragons i i haven't grown those sure. myself uh, jessica are those cut and come again as well yeah so they're um a little funny so you can get on the first round of cuts you get between two to three maybe four cuts off of one plant and then what you do is you just let them lie for um, about three to four weeks and they'll they'll flush again in the summer um bigger growers won't bother um waiting for the second flush sometimes they'll just rip them out and and have another succession coming through but um what's really great is you can get multiple cuts um off of them and with uh snapdragons they um Different varieties uh, will bloom at different times in the season, and they've been bred to sort of be um, successional. So you can uh, choose ones from different categories. So there's like one to four, um, and ones are, I believe, the earliest, and fours are the latest. And so you can get like a really nice staggering of blooms. So you can still see blooms as early as um, say May, June, and then all the way into say early August. And, and how do they perform post-harvest in terms of storage and on the table? Yeah, they're really great. They're, um, I would say anywhere from 
seven to maybe 12 days. Um, again, all these things really depend on how um, customers treat the flowers when they take them home and also post-harvesting treatment that the farmer does. Um, and uh, myself, I've been avoiding thus far using um, like holding solutions and uh, flower food and stuff like that um, because I try to grow more organically. So, um, but uh, proper cooling is like such a key thing when it comes to cut flowers. So being able to put them in a cool space not mixed in with uh, uh, fruits and vegetables is like a really great way to extend their life. And that latter um, point you made is because of ethylene gas that some fruits and vegetables um, yeah, give off. Yeah. So, yeah. So particularly actually um, snapdragons and sweet peas are very susceptible to ethylene. That being said, you know, you hear flower farmers like, oh, you know, keep them away from the vegetables. But I've been growing at um, mainly a vegetable uh, urban farm for the last uh, three years. And occasionally my flowers are in the cooler um, with some veggies for a short period of time. And I don't think it makes a tremendous difference, but it depends on, you know, how much you have loaded in there. Wonderful. Well, okay. One, one last very simple question, uh, Jessica, do you, mm -hmm. are there, are there any common flowers for cut flower sales that you recommend staying away from until, until one gains more experience? Yeah. So, uh, three of them that I was thinking about, um, a lot of people when they start growing flowers and especially if they do want to do anything with special events, they kind of get attracted to, uh, poppies and specifically Icelandic poppies. Um, I've had just a devil of a time, um, getting them to Germany and grow really well. They're, they're pretty tricky. Um, especially you need very particular environment for them to Germany and they also don't last as long, even though they're very beautiful. They're, they're better for event work. Um, dahlias, you'll see them a lot at markets and they are, uh, fairly fairly easy to grow, but they're a pretty big investment paying for the tubers. And also they don't have a long base life. So they are fun to get into, but you kind of have to uh, have the money in the space because they also take up a massive amount of space. Um, and then lastly, um, there's a group of flowers called um, Amy Magus, which is uh, false queen ants lace. Um, it's very beautiful. It looks a lot like Queen Anne's Lace. And the reason why I don't recommend it is that people often at market will think that it's just something you foraged off the side of the road. Um, but the other reason is if you don't harvest it at the right time, it gets very floppy. So it's really nice to have in mixed bouquets, but save it for a few years down the road. Well, Jessica Gale, thanks so much for coming on to, uh, to talk flowers with me. I'm sure my listeners will really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jordan. Well, hello, I'm John McCauley. I run uh, Healthy Hen Farms in uh, Oxford, North Carolina. We primarily produce pastured poultry, um, really the broilers, um, and we do about 8,000 birds a year. Um, so a fairly large operation, uh, one of the largest in this area at least. Um, and uh, I also do uh, online pasture poultry webinars. 
Um, so you can check our farm out at healthyhenfarms.com or uh, if you're interested in, in learning more in-depth uh, topics about pasture poultry, you can check us out at chickenpeople.com. All right, John. Well, uh, look, I'm really glad you joined me on the podcast. Thanks a lot. Th- thanks for having me, Jordan. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to working with you guys. So, John, uh, I thought given the time of year, it, it might be a good time for you to answer a few questions about, you know, keeping your birds healthy uh, in cold and wet weather, since a lot of us around North America will be experiencing that to varying degrees right now. So you're, uh, you've been, you're very experienced raising pastured poultry, and I'm wondering if you have tips uh, or advice uh, on that topic. Sure. Well, so first understand that, you know, with chickens, they're, they're a tropical bird and, you know, that's where they came from. And um, they can actually, they can take cold pretty good and, and they can take wet. And what they can't take is cold and wet. That That's like the the ultimate, uh, I mean, you're really asking for if you get cold, wet weather and you've got chickens on pasture. Uh, I think the Number one piece of advice I would give, uh, and it's one that we actually practice, is to try to avoid uh, as best you can the times of year that, that give you a lot of trouble. So for us here in North Carolina, it tends to be uh, early spring and, and, and late fall. And really what we've actually done is, is pushed our production season, um, you know, sort of squeezed it into uh, a more collapsed production season that tries to at least avoid having the birds on pasture for as long as we can and to get them off as quick as we can in the fall so uh, and of course a, a lot of that has to do with with how we uh how we produce and, and our main products which are are really frozen you know we sell a lot of frozen products so we're able to keep our customers stock you know basically all year round with pastured poultry um, which allows us to push our production in more into the summer because we've already got inventory that our customers are buying. So that's probably the the number one thing I would tell people is that if you can wait, because it, you know in, in our early years, um, I, I think we had the the largest uh, rates of mortality with our flocks. You know, in in that uh, early spring and and then late fall. So you know we're out there. Uh, you know, if, if a rain is coming and it's cold, you, you know, I mean, you know, if we, if, if it's cooler, especially at night in the spring and, and then you're getting a lot of wet weather, um, with wind blowing all of that on them, you know, we're out there, uh, putting hay down. So, so you, you can put hay on the ground or straw, uh, to get them up off of the ground. Cause you, you definitely don't want to have your chickens, uh, sitting on the ground in those shelters, uh, when it's when it's wet on the ground and when it's cold, because you will you will certainly uh, lose a lot. So, you know what we do, what we found works very well is actually putting the straw down in front of our shelters, and, and then we we move the shelters on top of that, um, as opposed to trying to get in there with the chickens in the shelters and and try to spread uh, spread a bunch of uh, straw and hay around. So, so does that suggest then, um, uh, John? So, well, okay, let's see. First of all. Um, is, is the, you say that the real, the real danger zone is when it's cold and wet. What, 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 what happens to the birds? I mean, I, I guess I should have started with that. Like, it, you know, you, you mentioned that's when you had your, your largest challenges with losing birds. Yep, yep. What actually is happening to them when they're, well, they're well, exposed to those conditions? 
Sure. I mean, it's well, it's it's a lot of the same things that happen to to us as humans or, or any animal, right? It's it's more of uh, it's more like a hypothermia type uh, situation. You'll go out there and your birds will be, you know, they'll be shaking. Um, you know that you can definitely tell they're cold, and then their feathers when they get wet, obviously they aren't insulating as well either, right? So. Um, you, you know, they, they definitely do not like it, and they will just sit there on the ground. And, and depending on, you know, how your pastures are and what quality of, of, of coverage you have, you know, you could end up with, with puddles of water. And, and when they're cold and wet, I mean, they'll simply sit in it, and you, and you, could, get, you could get birds that are drowning. They won't get up. They won't move. Um, you know, it, it, they get very lethargic. Um, and basically, they just start shutting down. So, and are you talking? Um, or I better. I guess we better square this. Are you talking mainly about broilers? Because I also. I guess I also need you to describe your coops, right? Because some people might have coops with layers where the hens are up off the ground overnight. But it sounds like you're you're describing a yeah. situation where they're staying on the ground all night. Yeah, absolutely. So that, and and we are talking primarily about. Uh, broilers, you know, with layers, if you've got layers year-round, you can sort, you can choose when to bring them out. You know, if you're keeping them in uh, hoop houses or or whatnot during the winter with deep bedding, you know, you can delay bringing them out. Uh, you know, d- depending on what types of shelters you have. But yeah, with our broilers, we're using a standard, you know, Salatin-style shelter um, uh, where the birds are directly on the ground. And, and you know, we we raise Cornish cross. That's our our breed and you know even if we put purchase in there right which you know some of the the uh animal humane certifications require you to put some purchase in but you know with with cornish cross i mean it would it would do no good they they won't get off the ground (laughs) absolutely so So, okay so getting back to some of your earlier comments so so let's say you know you as you mentioned you just delay your you set up your system so that you're not putting your birds out these broilers out when you know it's going to be cold and wet but let's say you get some unseasonal unseasonal cold and wet so your birds are out there Mm You, you mentioned one technique already, which is to go and spread some straw and or hay or, or other mulch ahead of the of the coop so that you can move the coop on top of it on the next move, and that gives them dry bedding. Um, I have that about right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, we actually, we, we do it as part of getting ready. Like if we know weather is coming in um, and we know it's, it's going to be pouring and it's already cold, We'll actually go out, you know, this could be, you know, just before, you know, it gets dark and we'll go out and actually do an unscheduled move, right? We do our moves every every morning. Um, so at night, you know, if, if, if the weather's bad, we would actually go out, put straw down and then actually move the move the coops on top of it just for that night, right? And then we're coming right back and doing another move in the morning. And that's really just to get them off the ground for, for at night when it, you know, when we typically, like in North Carolina, we get our, you know, it gets it's obviously gets the coldest and um you know at night which is the time we typically see the mortality if if we if we see it this time of year right any any other uh techniques for dealing with cold and wet when it happens aside from the one you just mentioned you know I, i've heard of people that that run you know heat lamps out in the shelters as well and obviously that wouldn't uh, it, it wouldn't be very practical for us uh, simply because, you know, we're running out in pastures that are away from, well, primarily where we have electricity. But uh, you're talking, I mean, we may have 40, 40 of these shelters stretched across the pasture at one time. Um, and so it's really not practical from a, a trying to get some sort of heat on. So, right. Um, well, I, I I like that the two pieces of advice that you, you do have, uh, though, John, you know, the one is one is buy some freezers. 
so that you don't have to be raising birds in the really challenging times of year and uh, and yet you can still keep your customers supplied. Uh, and the second being using various mulch uh, and putting that laying that down before you move um, before you move the shelters. That's great. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely, Jordan. Hey folks, Jordan here. Just a quick note to let you know that the next conversation with Herman Bruns features about two minutes where Herman's feed got a little dicey. So uh, stick with it. It doesn't last long and you'll still be able to understand what he's saying. Thanks. Here we go. Hello, my name is Herman Bruns and uh, my wife and I run uh, a 25 acre market garden and we've been doing it for the last 23 years in the North Okanagan. It's called Wild Flight Farm. So we have uh, two main ways of marketing our produce. Um, we have two farmers markets that we do, one in Salmon Arm and one in Revelstoke. And we also uh, supply quite a, quite a lot of vegetables to a home box delivery program in Kelowna called Urban Harvest. Herman Bruns, thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. Oh, you're welcome. No problem. So, Herman, today, uh, for, for our topic today, we're going to talk about trying to uh, be kind of first to market with your crops or just or just trying to be really early with some of the crops you're producing. And so my first question is whether you as a really you're a longtime market gardener, very experienced, you've you've experimented with many different marketing channels. Do you place do you yourself place much importance on trying to be the first to market with uh, with certain crops? Uh, well, we yeah, I wouldn't use the term being first to market so much as just wanting to make sure we have uh, a good selection as early as possible. What we're trying to do is offer a really broad selection of produce year round. So we're actually coming out of our winter market season where we've been um, supplying produce every second week to farmers markets. And then as soon as we have our own things, so, so a lot of those things, especially the greens would be imported at this time. So we do, you know, something that's di different from a lot of other farms and that we do continue with farmers markets, but we also offer uh, produce from other farms to augment our own. And then as soon as we, we have our own available, we're, we're super keen to, um, to bring those and, and displace some of the, the imports or things from other farms. So, um, you know, like for example, uh, right now um, we have uh, of our own things, we have from our cold frames or high tunnels, if you want to call them that, um, we have two crops that we, that overwinter and are available uh, throughout the winter. And one of them would be corn salad or mash in French. And the other one is Claytonia. And uh, so we have harvested both of those and we'll be taking them to market uh, uh, tomorrow. Herman, I'm really glad you brought up corn salad and Claytonia because those are crops I'm well aware of as like really hardy cold season crops. But I haven't really, I've never, aside from tiny little test plots, I've never really grown them commercially. Um, so what, I, maybe take me through that. When do you seed those crops with the plan to sell them in the spring? When do they go in the ground? Well, um, they would be seeded into plugs. We usually do them in plugs. Uh, although this year we did experiment with direct seeding Claytonia, and it's worked quite well. Uh, but the corn salad we have been doing in plugs, and we do that uh, sort of middle of August, and then we would transplant them sort of middle to late September, 
uh, some of the first, we usually do a couple of generations. So maybe one a little bit earlier, one a little bit later. And uh, so the first ones would be available. We're aiming for having them ready in December so that we can, our December markets can have some of those greens. Uh, and possibly the Claytonia is usually even a little bit earlier than that, probably in November. Uh, oh, oh, I see. So, then, so this yeah. isn't this isn't like when people seed their spinach in, say, October with the first cut coming in the spring. You're actually starting to cut these right through the winter, like starting in December. Well, with the, with the Claytonia, they are cut and come again. Um, with the corn salad, we cut them once and then they're done. So that's why we like to have a couple of generations. And then what happens is they grow nicely into December and then they kind of sit there over December and January and don't do anything. So it's kind of like a living refrigerator. Yeah. You just go in there whenever it's thawed. You can't harvest them when they're cold. But we always get these you know, warm periods, as you know. And uh, temperatures go above zero. Everything thaws in the greenhouse. And we can go in there and we can cut them. Uh, and so we, we have lots that are ready for that time period so that we have we can go in there anytime that it's warm enough and cut them. And then now, at this time of year, um, you know, as it starts warming up and the sun comes out of it, the corn salad's really super keen to burst, uh, to uh, bolt. So it's it's already on its way. And so we end up usually having to cut, you know, a month's worth of, of uh, corn salad. And it keeps so well that we can sell it for the next month. Right. Quick question. Is it, I mean, is this, are these crops that could work? This, this, this conversation is going to be going live this week, the first week of March. Is it something, are these crops that people could still consider be uh, planting to be harvesting for this spring or is it getting late? Uh, well, I have no experience seeding them in the spring. Um, these would all be have seeded, been seeded in the fall. Okay. Yeah. So I don't, yeah. Um, I've heard of people that say that they do it, but I don't know what, you know, uh, corn salad is very slow growing, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think it would work. Um, and the Claytonia, I'm not sure. Oh, okay. I haven't actually tried it. Because usually what happens in our case is we've got so many other things coming at this time of the year that there's, you know, those two are unusual greens, and when it comes time to sell them, you know, very few people are going to want to buy them. It's it's in the winter that you can sell them because there's nothing else around. <laughs> okay, well, moving on from those two crops, Herman, I'm just wondering if in general, like it, you've already mentioned that you're growing your, your early season crops in unheated tunnels. Is there anything else you're doing, you know, any technique-wise that you want to mention? Or is it is it just, is, is it just you're getting a little bit of a head start with uh, slightly warmer soil in your tunnels? We've seeded a bunch of crops uh, in the fall. So, well, particularly, we seeded several, uh, a couple of generations of lettuce mix and a couple of generations of spinach. We have um, green onions, uh, and we've planted uh, some uh, garlic very close together, and also uh, red Russian kale seems to work quite well. So those are those are all the crops that we plant in the fall. The green onions and the the garlic, we are, what we're doing there is we're selling them like we would green onions. We pull them when they're about the size of a green onion and sell them bunched like green onions. So we call it green garlic. And I guess people can enjoy the tops of the garlic as well as a little tiny yeah, the bone whole developing. Plant, just like you would with onions. You would, exactly, like the green onions. And that's, uh, that's something we learned from Achia, a fellow that was uh, from Switzerland that had worked on a farm and uh, a market garden in Switzerland. He said they used to do that there and we we just we were always looking for some other early crops that we can sell and and garlic in a in a in a high tunnel is going to be really early like it's already about three inches high so um, 
it's going to be, you know, ready to harvest in about four weeks. Well, now I've got to ask about that, Herman. Um, what 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 variety or or what cloves are you planting for that? Or uh, one reason I'm asking is um, garlic seed can be very expensive. Are you planting whole large cloves from larger, fully mature garlic, or is there another approach with green garlic? Usually, what we're doing is. Uh, we have garlic. We grow quite a lot of garlic, uh, and in the course of selling it over our winter markets, we're always culling out some that have been damaged, or you know, we have, or even during the harvest process, there are some cr- that bulbs that get damaged a bit, or something like that, or kind of not looking very nice. And we save all our cull garlic and uh, break it up and plant that because we're we're not even if it's a little bit diseased, usually it'll, it'll grow. Uh, at least to the, you know, the point where we can pull it as a uh, as a green garlic and and sell it that way. No, and that that's brilliant because a you're, you're, it's not going to be in the ground long enough, uh, you know, presumably for disease to be a problem. And b you can plant the tinier cloves that you would normally. Yeah, we not... just plant anything and everything we got. Because oh, it that's matter. awesome. We're just we're just going to pull the whole thing. Right on. That's really cool. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Herman Bruns, I, I really, I really appreciate you coming on, and I, I, I you know, I'm, I look forward to having you back on to cover another topic in the future. Thanks so much. Yeah, sure, anytime, Gordon. It's great talking to you. Hey, folks, Jordan again. Before we get going on this next interview, I just want to disclose that I am on the board of directors of the Canadian Organic Growers, which publishes the Canadian Organic Grower magazine. I don't think that has anything to do with this interview, but that's for you to decide. Hi, I'm Amy Kremen. I'm the co-editor with Stephanie Wells of the Canadian Organic Grower Magazine. Amy Kremen, thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. Thanks for having me. Amy, you're the editor of the Organic, sorry, the Canadian Organic Grower Magazine, and you're here to tell me that you've got a jam-packed issue about to hit stands within a week. That's right. So what uh, what's the what's the focus of the the issue uh, this time? Well, we're really excited about this issue. Um, we decided, uh, in light of the November 2015 release of the revised Canadian Organic Standard, to actually focus the spring issue on pertinent implications of those revisions. So we're thinking, well, you know, regulations, tricky, complex, maybe not so exciting. But really, uh, looking at how certification works in practice as it's lived out by the farmers and processors, if there's a way to talk about it from the perspective of people, of people who are directly affected, we thought this would be a really great way of showing how the standards are lived in action. So we've tried to cover through a range of uh, the main topics that were that were subject to a lot of revisions in the standard. We've tried to provide articles on those topics. Well, I, I'm looking at a summary of the articles that'll be in the the issue, and wow, there's really a lot here, and they look really interesting. Um, you've got like it, it appears you have a little article dealing with a whole diff, a whole bunch of different aspects of the updated Canadian Organic Standards. So, Amy, let's talk about some of those updates. And uh, you know, I've got the list in front of me here. I'll just pick, I'll pick ones that kind of jump out at me. The first one I think I'd really like to talk talk about are the changes regarding the use of biodegradable mulches in uh, commercial veggie operations. Um, mm-hmm. what, what's the gist there? What, what's the, what change are, is about to happen? Okay, so this is a change that actually has kind of already gone into effect in some ways. Basically, what, what it comes down to is that there was a, a realization that happened in 2015 um, that the component parts of 
the very popular biodegradable mulches that are used across Canada um, actually have some components that aren't uh, that don't, aren't factored into the permitted substances list for or required for organic required for organic certification. And um, so, in that case, basically these these biofilms were being used. They, they had been approved for use by certifiers, but they actually contained components that, that weren't approved for use in under under the Canadian Organic Standard. Biofilms are tricky because once you put them out in the field, they actually start to decompose right away. And so eliminating, pulling them off the field after they're, them being used is, is quite, um, quite a daunting um, prospect. Shannon Jones, uh, who has written, uh, who wrote a talk, who wrote, I found, I, I'd seen an article that she'd written about this topic when it kind of came to light last year. Um, I decided to follow up with her to get a follow-up to say, you know, I know that you're going to be researching this. Could you turn some of that research and your explorations talking to other farmers about the different options and alternatives? Um, and you do your own research for your own farm. Do you think you could turn it around and make that abuse to other farmers? And she's done so in a beautiful piece that lays out many different options that uh, her farm intends to um use or is already using or plans to explore okay let's talk about cheese wax what what change All right. we got some good news for organ certified organic cheese makers don't we yeah this is a lot of fun so um this uh this little piece came about um because of an alternate hat that i wear um as the as the convener for the permitted substances list processing working group i had a farmer come and approach me uh, called me up out of the blue one day and he's a he's a dairy producer from alberta who said you know I make uh, these traditional um, howdah cheeses, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hearing different things from different certifiers. Meanwhile, in Europe, traditional cheesemaking, there's, a, there's, an, a, there's this organic coating, which has been approved in Europe, and I really wish the, the playing field could be leveled. This is a special coating that's been derived without the use of synthetics or fungicides or bactericides, and um, it's not consumed. Um, and people in Europe can use it to make traditional cheeses in a traditional way. Meanwhile, we're having to rely on ways that aren't traditional to try to make traditional cheeses. Um, and so we worked with the working group to do some more research, and uh, the, the use of cheese wax, which is kind of a funny product because it's kind of packaging, and it's kind of a processing aid. It kind of doesn't fit into any category. And so it, had, it was sort of a gap in the organic standard. It hadn't been as of yet addressed in, in clear language. And so now there's clear text that allows the use of um, organic compatible um, waxes and other cheese coatings to be used to be making traditional cheeses. And talking to some some cheesemakers, they are they're thrilled because this opens the this is, opens the range of the different kinds of high quality organic cheeses that can be made in the traditional way that can be cured in the traditional way and, and it'll 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 make for some really wonderful um and beautiful products very cool very cool okay uh let's see there's so many here that you cover i'm really i can't believe you've managed to fit it all into uh, the upcoming issue but let's talk two more maybe uh, let's do one for the livestock lovers. Dairy barns. What's happening with dairy barns? Okay, so this is uh, this is a really important one. Um, the main change has to do with um, what kind of barn you have. If you're using a tie stall barn, uh, a winter exercise requirement was uh, put into effect, which states that uh, dairy uh, dairy cows housed in tie stall barns need to go outside once a day or at least twice a week um, during the winter time. 
And um, dairy cows that are housed in freestyle barns aren't subject to this exercise requirement because they're walking around freely um, going to feed and going to be milked and things like that. Um, so for farms that have high stalls, and this is a lot of farms across Canada, um, what this means is that, you know, if they have difficulty fulfilling that exercise requirement, actually many of them might have difficulty fulfilling this exercise requirement in terms of getting their cows to go outside. They might not have the right kind of space, um, or a big enough space to take their whole herd out at once, which means it's going to be a very big burden for them in terms of time and effort to actually fulfill this winter exercise requirement. Um, Another part of the standard is that um, those with high stall barns who have a difficulty fulfilling this winter exercise requirement must um, submit by next year a construction plan that can be carried out within the next five years of how they're going to um, renovate their barns. And those barn renovations cannot include high stalls. They have to be in a freestall system. So this is huge because to renovate a barn in this manner is extremely is an ex- requires extreme investment. The bottom line was many of the livestock changes were made in order to um, uh, were made with the with the whole intention of clarifying and specifying ways in which animal welfare um, in within the organic systems would be promoted. Right. Uh, okay. So, well, I, I wanted to add to that. My very first season on a farm was on a was on a beef operation in Nova Scotia where they had a barn that was only had tie stalls. So through the winter. Uh, you know, for weeks and weeks of the year, um, the cows were just standing up and sitting down. That was their life. And, and, uh, it was that, it was one of those situations where there was a real barrier to changing things that the, the, the farmer was a sixth generation farmer. That's how they'd been doing it forever. But he was kind of limited by his infrastructure and the huge cost of changing it. He eventually did, but it's, it's nice to see this, this update to the standards. Mm-hmm. That, thanks for bringing that, bring, bringing that into like clarity about actually how this how this works and the difference for for, for cows and tie stalls and why it, why it's so important. Um, it's really cool because in a freestyle system, I, I, there's two two things I'd like to say really quickly. In a in a, in a freestyle system, um, what's interesting is that um, especially when you make a lot of changes, so you can incorporate some of the robotics with regard to feeding and milking. It actually um, Helps it will help an organic farmer um, really survey, like really understand in real time um, by the testing of the milk that happens for each cow, each each milking, or how much what what a cow is eating at each feeding. It will help them to optimize and better understand what's going on with each cow, and uh, really have a great understanding of their system and be able to adapt in real time. And the second thing, which I think is a very cool looking head, which is kind of why we titled you know the title. Uh, the revisions usher in a new generation of dairy farming, organic dairy farming, is that many conventional growers right now are, um, excuse me, dairy producers are using high stall barns. And one of the things that I think is most promising looking ahead, if we're thinking about will more conventional farmers eventually um, consider transitioning to organic production, is that if they've already adopted the tie stall, excuse me, the free stall system within their um, farms, then there are fewer components. Those farmers who might be interested in transitioning have to figure out the, the forage and the pasturing part of their operations, but they don't have to figure out housing and the feeding and milking portions. They've already got that part already in line with uh, and compatible with organic systems, which I think is going to lower the barrier to entry for some of these farmers in the future. Cool. And I might add, just for, I mean, this this issue compared to your other issues is very, I guess, it's more relevant for the certified organic farmer. And it, I don't really think that's true. 
necessarily. I think um, this, like the dairy farms piece is written, for example, in a way that it's supposed to, it's supposed to be relevant to non-organic growers who are curious about transitioning in and what it takes and what it involves, kind of trying to make that clear for them. And another thing is that it's to explain to consumers what organic, what certified organic, not necessarily certified organic systems, but really organic systems are all about. So like that, there's a piece in there about organic maple. It's like people be like, well, isn't all, isn't all maple syrup organic? And, you know, the reason why there's a standard is to help, you know, like kind of set, clarify what the differences are between a mainstream and an organic system. So we're really trying to make sure that this is actually a way of helping explain, keep, keep on educating consumers on what, um, what organic is and what it means and what it looks like for the farmers who choose to take it on. So inspiring. And uh, a lot of work goes behind doing this. And I think, so we're, we're really keeping consumers in mind with this issue um, in terms of what we think it might bring or convey to them about the importance of how organic works in practice. Uh, I hate, I hate to, uh, I hate to ask you to look ahead. You're probably burnt out from producing this issue, but what, what, what have you, what are you working on for the, uh, let's see, this is the spring issue. So what are you working on for the next one? Probably coming out in the summer. That's great. I love to pitch future issues. Um, (laughs) I, uh, so the, this, uh, the spring issue is, um, looking good so far. We've got uh, a range of articles from across the country coming in, um, uh, it's a real goal of ours to have livestock and crops production from as many provinces as possible in each issue. So that we really are creating a Canadian story, um, or you know, a hist- basically just keep on with each issue, showing what Canada organic looks like. Um, and uh, so we've got it's going to be on specialty um, specialty crop production. So we've got uh, we'll have. Uh, an article about a specialty cheese producer or cheese maker and uh, a spelt kamut farmer. Um, it looks like we'll have one for high, about high tunnel greenhouse growing um, of certain crops and so on. So that's looking exciting. Looking ahead to fall 2016, I think, not totally sure, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be the family issue. Um, this is going to be about different issues, agronomic pertinent, but different issues that have to do with um, how you make it work with your family on your farm. Say one person in a couple is a farmer, but the other person isn't. How does that work? So um, there's a lot of different ways you can kind of approach that topic, and I'm hoping to pull that off. Uh, okay, well, look, how can people uh, look at the, the spring issue? Like, what are ways people can consume this content? All right, so um, there's going to be, uh, to begin with, this is going to be available as uh, part of our print subscription, which comes out three times a year. Uh, it's at the printers now, and if you go online to magazine.cog.ca or simply cog.ca, you can get to uh, click on a button that says magazine, and you can subscribe. Uh, a three-year, excuse me, a one-year subscription, which comes out three times a year, is $20.34. Um and that'll come to your house. And uh, in the meantime, if you want to get started, we've put a sneak peek up online. If you go to magazine.cog.ca and look in the recent posts on the right-hand column, you should be able to find the preview link for the issue. Scroll down the list of the content, and there's an active link to look at that dairy farm um, article that we talked about earlier. Amy Kremen, thanks so much for coming on to talk about TCOG Magazine. You're so welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Today I learned I... All right, folks. So that about does it for this uh, this first edition of the the Practical Focus Ruminant episodes, which will be happening every other week. 
Now, I would love to know what you think about this uh, this new format. It's not set in stone, and uh, yeah, we're just getting going with it. So uh, if you like it, or if you hate it, or you're somewhere in between, please let me know. Editor at theruminant.ca. And uh, just just about, I don't know, 50% of the emails I get, whatever their main focus, uh, the writer also asks who's singing at the end of the show, uh, you know, the person that's singing right now as I'm talking. Well, I'll say it again. That's my wife. That's Vanessa. She wrote this song, and uh, it is available for stream and download at theruminant.ca slash podcast if you want to check it out. Okay, so next week we'll be going back to a long-form interview on, uh, you know, like a broader topic. Stay tuned for that, and have a great week, everybody. Chestnuts, spring water, and peaches will owe nothing to this world of thieves and live life like it was meant to be. Why would we live in a place that don't want us? A place that is trying to bleed us dry. We could be happy with life in the country, with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands. I've been doing a lot of thinking, some real soul searching. And here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car To keep my love going strong So we'll run right out into the wilds and braces We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces And live next door to the birds and the bees And live life like it was